I'm Jay Sevilla Helfand. And I'm Zara Zimbardo. White Noise Collective is a volunteer, anti-racist feminist collective. Since 2010, we've offered spaces for deep reflection, dialogue, and political education to amplify racial justice action in our movements and our lives. Our work focuses on the patterns of interaction between white racial privilege and gender marginalization. Our core collective is made up of white trans non-binary folks and cis women dedicated to growing movements for collective liberation. We are located in and recording this podcast on Chochenyo Ohlone land in Oakland, California. You can go to conspireforchange.org to learn more. In this time of transformation, this podcast shares the voices of longtime movement builders for racial justice with a focus on the roles and possibilities of white people in solidarity. We welcome you to join us in this experiment as we practice growing our wit to hold complexity, deepening our strategy, and honoring legacies of resistance. Thank you for joining us. Mordecai Cohen Edinger is founding director of the Health Justice Commons and development director for Sins Invalid. He has over 20 years experience as a multi-sector social justice activist and organizer, holistic healer, radical scholar and educator. Mordecai co-founded the TGI Justice Project, served as an interim co-director at Justice Now, and as interim executive director at the Caduceus Outreach Services, a radical mental health organization. He is adjunct faculty at the California Institute of Integral Studies. His field is critical science, technology, and medicine studies. Mordecai's research spans environmental health and toxicology to the workings of the medical industrial complex, to the neurobiology of the social nervous system, and its implications with regard to collective and historical trauma, healing, resilience, and social change. Schooled by years of movement work, and trained in somatic experiencing, Reiki, and cranial sacral therapy. He has studied with Dr. Peter Levine, biophysicist and founder of somatic experiencing, and Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He is the author of the forthcoming book, We All Hold Up the Sky, Lessons in Health Justice for the 21st Century. Finally, Mordecai is queer slash gender non-binary. He is a survivor of radiation poisoning, and what is designated by the UN to be medical torture. He's here for transforming the medical industrial complex for our futures to be possible. Welcome Mordecai. We are so excited and grateful to have you here with us for all of the future listeners that will get to to listen and receive. And we wanted to begin just with a question around story that's about some of your path, um, both as a healer and into racial justice work. Thank you so much, Jay and Zada. It's really delightful and such a gift to be here with the two of you and to be in the company of the listeners. So thank you for tuning in. That's a big question. And even though you gave it to me beforehand, I feel that I need to just sit with it for a moment. 
I've been thinking a lot during this period of the pandemic, I think probably as a lot of people have about my life as a whole. And I've been having a lot of memories returned to me of when I was a very small child. And I've been thinking recently, you know, when I was four or five years old, when I first entered kindergarten and what that was like, and that experience of entering the world of one's peers instead of just being in like the small nexus of, you know, your family or your caregivers that looks so different across cultures and times and moments. But for me, it was, there was a lot of chaos and violence in my childhood, but there was pockets of a lot of sweetness. And a lot of that sweetness was time that I got to spend with my grandmother before I was old enough to go to school because my brothers weren't born yet. And my parents went off to work and my grandmother lived with us and was retired by that time. So I had all of this solitary time with my grandmother. And then there was a shift in that when I went to, to kindergarten. But I think both moments really, and, and those sets of relationships influence how I might understand my path as a healer or someone who supports the healing of others and the healing of our world. And also how my consciousness around racial justice was formulated. My grandmother and her sisters and her father and her mother were all kind of dedicated to racial justice. My great grandparents, they were immigrants like a lot of Ashkenazi Jews. My grandmother's mother, my great grandmother, actually both of those grandparents fled the pogroms to come here. One from like the area of Minsk and my grandfather, and then the other one from the area that's now called Moldova, which was kind of like, was it Russia? Was it Ukraine? It was like a village, you know, it was disputed territory during that time. And that was kind of part of what contributed to this violence against Ashkenazi Jews in that historical period. So there's like a story in my family that my great-grandmother and her sisters came over as stowaways and hid out in herring barrels to escape the violence of the pogroms. And I think it was a radicalizing experience for that part of the family and for my grandfather also. And I didn't get to meet either one of them, but there's also family stories of my grandfather introducing himself as saying, I'm a, a socialist and an atheist, and I'm very happy to, to meet you. Just like anybody who would stand still long enough like he would just be like i'm a socialist and i'm an atheist and like yeah if you're cool with that then like we can be down and i think that said a lot about his political trajectory and like his trajectory as like a, a working class secular socialist jew was like a big it was very prominent in my grandmother and her sister's upbringing, and they all became activists and radicalized in their own right. My grandmother became a nurse, and it's interesting. Like, there was also survivors in my family of non consensual sterilization who were Jewish immigrants. So, it's like it's interesting. My grandmother kind of retained this skepticism of medical institutions while simultaneously being a part of them. Because I think she knew at that moment, it was like one of the only fields that she could enter as a woman, as a Jewish woman in that moment. She used to always tell the story, like I came in second in the state for my state boards, which I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. That's a big accomplishment. My grandmother was, may, may her memory be for a blessing, very smart woman. But I think she was also very oriented to service. Like she wanted to be of service to people. She wanted to be able to heal people. 
And I think she was pragmatic too. Like she wanted to be able to have access to knowledge, access to resources so she could be a resource to her communities. And she was that during the depression, she lived in Philadelphia and she was one of the only people in her communities that were still working. So she was like, I heard stories growing up too, that like she was like feeding the community. The community was mostly working class Jewish people and immigrants and like working class Italians. And there was just like a lot of spaghetti, like everybody's eating. Growing up, there was like a lot of Italian recipes that my grandmother learned. Schistler Street was the part of Northeast Philadelphia where they live. And then my youngest aunt, my aunt Betty, may her memory be for a blessing, beautiful person. She was engaged in like anti-imperialist organizing against the Vietnam War with her husband, my late uncle Lenny, his memory be for a blessing. They were involved in the civil rights movement. My grandmother was like engaged in that work as well. So my consciousness of social justice and just honoring the wisdom and power of oppressed and targeted people really came down from that side of the family was really strongly ingrained from my grandmother. Like very early on, I remember her like really telling me this, never judge anyone until you've... <laughs> for the listeners, I'm like starting to tear up every day. <laughs> Just pause for the listeners. Yeah, I mean, I remember like very distinctly the moment when she told me, and I might've done something that she didn't like in this moment. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. She was like, never, you know, she's like, never judge anyone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. You know, it sounds a little bit like a cliche, but in that moment, no, I understood exactly what it meant. You know, I understood that it was like a kernel of solidarity that never left me because it was just, I think as immigrants, my great grandparents and, and my grandmother, like they really instilled in me to honor the struggles, people who are oppressed or marginalized. And I think you know, especially around racial justice and their involvement in the civil rights movement. I think especially there was a consciousness in my family when they came here of like, there's a huge amount of racism against Black people or African-American people. And those are the people whose labor and lives and blood have made our immigration here possible. Like we're alive because of their work and their labor and like the horrific things that people have survived or didn't survive. So I really feel like that was there. So there was just like a respect. It was like respect that I really got and some like condensed appropriate for children type of way. Like when she was telling me those things, it was about racial justice and what solidarity meant. And and also of course, compassion and humility. And my grandmother was like one of these types of people, like just anybody she encountered, they were like her new best friend, you know, like, (laughs) Doesn't that like she could really like just connect with anyone. And she did. She like got active in the Democratic Party when she was a young adult. Like, I don't know how young, but like an adult. And during the time that I knew her and, you know, she was doing voting stuff for progressive representatives in the area where I live and things like that. So like activism, organizing, civic engagement and racial justice were really modeled by my grandmother, who was like one of the people on the planet that I've admired and learned from the most. And then this is a very long answer. I remember when I got to kindergarten, like you're in this life world of all these complex dynamics. And I was a very highly attuned child to people's inner worlds. And I don't like to say sensitive because I feel like that in some way reasserts or re-entrenches forms of ableism or white supremacy or just normative ways of being that 
are actually violent. <laughs> so mm. I don't feel like I'm like that sensitive. I just feel like I cannot tolerate what passes as okay in the society a lot of times. But anyway, like a very attuned kid and all these different dynamics of people and these little life forms, four or five years old, it's like a very interesting age. We're still kind of, our minds are still... I don't know, like tuning into the ethers in a different way than even when we get to be six or seven. So it's like this really unique time. And, you know, I started experiencing things I never experienced before, like bullying. Like I just literally couldn't understand it. I was like, why is someone teasing me or calling me names, calling me names that I don't even understand what they mean, but I just know that it's like meant to make me feel bad. Mm -hmm. It was like very, very hard for me to understand, to make sense of that. And of course, some of the ways that that happened was some of the children that were most teased were the children of color. And there weren't a lot of children of color in my school at that time. Now the place where I grew up, which was outside of Philadelphia, is now much more multiracial. But at that time, it was very, very white. And some of my early experiences of that time period of that year of my life was just feeling horrified about the pressure to tease other children, especially mm -hmm. the children who are children of color. I had this one moment where I participated in it once and I literally felt so horrible instantaneously afterwards because I looked into this child's eyes who was my friend and who I loved with just like the amount of like hurt and betrayal and despair. And I was like, that was literally one of the most painful things that happened to me up to that point. Like, I remember that moment. I just remember like immediately stopping, immediately apologizing to them and just being like, I am going to take the heat with this person. It doesn't matter. This small child is now an adult my age and is doing really well. And that's a really good life. Um, I was just like, I will be bullied instead of participating in that, no matter what could happen to me, because like the pain and shame of inflicting that on another person was just like so painful. It was intolerable. I was like, nothing is worse than that. <laughs> like no matter what could happen to me. And that's kind of what happened. I just got bullied a lot. <laughs> school, And oftentimes I got bullied for sticking up for other people that were getting bullied, not just teasing. There was like, yeah, it was just, but it was just like, it was just like, I made a choice in that, in that moment. And I think as an adult in my life, like in, in part, a lot of my healing work, you know, has been like, how can we create a space in the world, within ourselves, within our hearts, within our communities, where that's not a binary decision. Like it doesn't have to be like, there's a much broader space of how we can coexist with each other and kind of uplift and center interdependency and just like recognizing our inherent sacredness and interconnection where it doesn't have to be all against all, you know, the Hobbes, <laughs> all against all. <laughs> So I think a lot of my life's work has been trying to find a space that's beyond that. But I remember that moment really poignantly. And then I've organized a lot of my life around organizing with and in solidarity with and doing work across a lot of different sectors that really kind of centered that value and that principle. And there's other learnings. My bus driver that year, who was like one of the first adults that I met outside of my family and loved, his name was Greg and he was black. And at the end of the year, he left. And I was like distraught. I was like, why is Greg leaving? Like, and my family explained to me like, oh, he got a job working on an Alaskan oil rig. I'm sure they didn't use the word rig. I'm sure they said big boat that does things you because know, I was five. But like now I, in retrospect, I know what it was. He like worked on an Alaskan oil rig. And I was like, why is he 
going so far away like why does he have to do that obviously i was a little kid i was like why can't he just like continue to drive the bus because he's my friend and i love him you know like also he protected me on the bus from getting bullied so also loved him for that and they were like he has to move because like this is a better job for him and his family and i was like what is happening that like someone has to move so far to like get a good job there's these things that were, of course, very blatant, you know, among the children that I saw. And then there's these more subtle things that adults weren't fully explaining where I was understanding about economic injustice and racialized capitalism when I was like seeing the people in this adult world that I loved, like not being able to live the lives that they wanted to because of the restrictions of those injustices. And you pick up on a lot of that shit when you're really young. So it's like there was a lot of education in those early moments that I carry with me. And I'm grateful for that. And I honor those people in my heart for the learning that I've come to. And I hope that my life's work honors them. That was a really long answer. <laughs> it's a big question. And I feel the care and honoring in the way you're sharing now. And just appreciate you even in the way you named some of your story, which I know is wide and broad in its own way, <laughs> just the expansiveness with which you've like honored both your family and also these very early memories of what does it actually mean to organize our lives around these questions of living into more, more than these binaries, more than a kind of fighting for scraps, you know? And I wanted to ask what your grandmother's name is, because you, you spoke of her so, so fully and so fondly. And I was curious if it would feel honoring to presence her name. Yeah, I would love to. Um, her name is Pearl Pinsker Ettinger. Her maiden name was Pinsker. And then her mother's name was Gilman. And my grandfather's name was Willie. Mm -hmm. My name is Willie Pinsker. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Taking people's hand vigorously. <laughs> Thank you, Mordecai. Socialist. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Socialist <laughs> Thank you for all of the spirits, all of the lives that you've presenced. And I just really appreciate, you know, as we're asking you about your individual path, <laughs> but it's like all of these ancestral tributaries that have fed into your life and sharing, you know, these deeply formative imprints as a young person making sense of navigating this world. Thank you for all that you shared. Well, you know, we are huge fans huge. of Health Justice Commons, which is just tremendously inspiring. And we've collaborated in some different ways over the years and really want to lift up the vision and work of health justice, which itself is a newish term. And so we want to take some time to ground into some of like the core concepts and contexts in order to really appreciate like, what is this intervention? Like the deep why of health justice commons. We wanted to start with just the definition of health. And if I may <laughs> read from some of the powerful language <laughs> on the health justice commons website, and this is in the section talking about vision, saying health does not come out of a bottle, cannot be dispensed by a pharmacy, nor can it be easily or entirely defined by health experts. Health must be defined and informed by us and our wisdom, grounded in the totality of our own experiences, from the laboratory of our lives, our lived in and living bodies. Autonomy and bodily sovereignty are essential elements of health. So... 
This is a gorgeous definition that really expands the frame of what we're even talking about when we're using the term health. So what is the lens on health? Thank you so much, Zada, for reading that and reading it so beautifully and uplifting that. I really appreciate it. I think in the broadest and hopefully most complete sense, health is really anything and everything which supports life and honors the sacred interconnectedness and interdependence of all life and also uplifts the necessity for justice in the ways that we organize our world, our cultures, our institutions, our behavior with and to one another, the planet and all living beings. It's very, very expansive and it has actually just been prescribed or described in ableist and exploitative ways by and through the medical industrial complex and some of the other oppressive systems that flow through, but also invisibly ground the medical industrial complex or health systems as we know them, because all of the listeners might not be familiar with that term, the medical industrial complex, but I think we'll talk about it a little bit more in depth in a little bit. Yeah, I really appreciate the expansiveness and the complexity of that definition and what it invites us to consider instead of a very narrow frame that health is just individual choices and genetics. And so it just really shifts the kind of questions that we can ask about what people are suffering from, what does healing mean, what is going on on collective, societal, planetary, ecological you know, and more kind of like immediate environments. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think that even our kin and comrades and accomplices that are within the medical industrial complex, our our health systems are seeing and knowing in a very powerful way that health is not individual at all. They're really kind of disrupting these sets of myths. And in fact, there was a whole huge group of healthcare workers who converged at COP26 to demand that climate justice be considered a health justice issue, that people understand that climate injustice and and climate crisis is a health emergency. And in fact, one of the groups that's part of that front is a global healthcare alliance. And they were saying like, actually, I prescribe clean air for my patients. That's what they need. And that is a human right. I prescribe the right to clean air, you know, more specifically. So it's like, there's a whole shift where even people that are most embedded in healthcare systems are disrupting it from within. And in a lot of ways, the Health Justice Commons has come into being to start organizing with those folks inside the MIC with other folks who are survivors of medical abuse and also disabled communities, especially BIPOC, disabled or or sick or chronically ill communities, and also queer, trans, non-binary, low-income communities, all of us who have been most marginalized and most harmed by the medical industrial complex, we are kind of organizing and and other healers as well. We are organizing with those folks on the inside. So that's a big piece of the work too. And that is a departure from your initial question of what health is, but maybe approaching the question of what health justice is or what it might look like. But I think, yeah, this moment that we're in of this departure from health, very narrowly defined as individualistic or as genetics, as something that we can only access and understand through the disciplines of science. Like, no, uh-uh, no way. And this is definitely a moment too where we're listening to indigenous leaders to recalibrate our understandings of what health truly is and saying, okay, like, how is it that we reorganize our systems 
where Indigenous and ancestral healing practices can be more centered, where their legitimacy can be uplifted, where healers and practitioners doing that work can have a sustainable life without having to combat cultural appropriation and capitalist commodification at every turn. Like, what is that? How do we get there? So that's a big piece of it, too. It's a big piece of this kind of collective reclamation of what health really is that we're a part of in this moment. Thank you for all of that. I notice the word that really I feel in like my heart and my spirit is sacredness when I hear you describe that inside of what health means and inside of a profoundly collective vision, a liberatory vision, and also just a creative shaking up of what is possible inside of some of these more individualistic roles for healthcare providers, as well as for movement organizers and you know, for the sake of people who may be less familiar with some of both Ural's work as well as some of this terminology, we're also wanting to hear a little bit from you around this term in particular, medical industrial complex, MIC, that we heard you describe. I know it's a hefty one to break down, but would love to hear just for newer people, how might you describe the medical industrial complex? Thank you so much. That's a great question. So, A brief definition for the medical industrial complex is that it's a profit-driven system that's comprised of interlocking institutions, corporations, and knowledge disciplines, which manage, define, research, and control healthcare, health-related services, their provision, and social and cultural beliefs regarding health, wellness, and whose body is normal, fit, or worthy, and in the most extreme cases, even worthy of life. Certainly being worthy of access to care, access to resources, access to education, all the things that we need to be whole and thrive, all the things that we all deserve. So that's like really a kind of germane definition of the medical industrial complex or the MIC. Then in the health justice commons teachings in our political education, we also talk about the medical industrial complexes, MOs. But before I get to that, maybe I'll just kind of define some of the terms within that definition by just giving some examples that folks might not be familiar with. So institutions, that's probably a word or a concept that folks are familiar with. Unfortunately, we have to interact with them every day. It's like part of the way that our society is organized. But institutions within the medical industrial complex, it could be very broad. It could be a hospital. It could be like your insurance provider. It could be a research entity that's part of the organization that you attend. All of those types of examples are examples of institutions that are part of the the medical industrial complex, but it could be further out than what you might think of immediately. It could be a group home. It could be the foster care system. It could be a dieting service. The quote unquote weight management or weight loss industry is a multi-million dollar industry. Those are other institutions that we can think of when we think about the medical industrial complex. And then of course, there's many corporations, big pharma, huge right up there. I think obviously in the top of people's minds right now because of the vaccine apartheid that's happening, the price gouging around vaccines that's happening, especially Moderna and Pfizer are very culpable of this. The failure to relinquish the patenting rights. So preventing countries across the world from allowing their fabrication within their own countries to create more vaccines, to get more people vaccinated, to ensure more people's safety and livelihood and survival. So that's just a very overt example that I'm sure is very 
accessible for folks. Knowledge disciplines really talks about medical science in a lot of ways. Genetics, you know, just like you mentioned a few moments ago in our conversation, epigenetics, that's something that we're learning about more in the public sphere. And that's we're getting that information filtered to us through these scientific institutions, these medical scientific institutions. These types of institutions, they wield a great deal of power over who gets care resource institutions and insurance companies and hospital administrators work together to create policies such as medical rationing that we've seen happening during the pandemic, especially at its height. So a lot of that, a lot of the kind of intellectual knowledge that would back those type of assessments of what is a good policy for medical rationing, which is just a fancy way of saying eugenics 2.0, right? Like those come from scientific disciplines, these knowledge discourses that are embedded in the MIC and also are created through it. And it wields a huge amount of authority because it's medical experts and medical associations and backed by lobby groups and all of these different layers of ways that they leverage power over people without those letters behind our names or without those institutions that have our backs where we're kind of up against some concrete things that we might come across in our, in our lives is trying to work with gatekeepers in hospital systems that are using the knowledge generated from medical science to designate what set of symptoms actually constitute legitimate illness. That's a huge thing. And this is because of the racism and the ableism in medical science and in these institutions in the MIC. People could go decades without getting the diagnosis that they need to get access to the treatment that they need. And then there's ways in which racist and ableist practices are kind of embedded directly into the diagnostic assessment or even technological tools. The algorithms that have been used historically to measure kidney health had been race corrected for Black Americans, like literally up until like three months ago, when after years of organizing and many people losing their lives, organizing on behalf of like community members, organizing on behalf of Black doctors and healthcare workers, and then their allies and accomplices within and outside of the MIC, that's now been changed. So that algorithm has been shifted. So a person who is Black doesn't have to have essentially worse scores on their kidney health to be able to access any type of care associated with the onset of kidney disease that you might need. It might be dialysis. It might be that you have to be considered for a transplant or hopefully other things, you know, that would be less invasive for a person's life. These are examples of the way that the MIC's tentacles, <laughs> you know, reach into people's lives and how medical science as a knowledge discipline has that impact. I think the field of gynecology and J. Marion Sims's involvement as like being the founder of that discipline is something that is now increasingly well known in our communities that I just like to state a, a content advisory because, and I should have a moment ago, I'm sorry, some of these things that I'm sharing now are very painful. They very well may be impacting people who are listening very directly in your own life, your families, your ancestors. So just honoring that. I'm naming these things so they can be exposed, so we can transform them for good. And it's also painful to hear them and to hear them spoken about by a white ally as well. So just like honoring the complexity and the pain of all of this. So yeah, so just J. Marion Sims, quote unquote, father of gynecology, 
that knowledge accumulation happened because of non-consensual experimentation with enslaved Black people and very low-income immigrants who are often residing in poor houses and things of that nature. So just highly, highly, highly exploitative and violent and, and horrific, really. But the tools, the technologies, the knowledge that was accumulated through through that torture, essentially, it constitutes contemporary gynecology. Like, that's it. That's what we have. You're welcome. <laughs> that's a terribly sarcastic thing to say, but like that's the reality of the medical system. And there's a lot of examples of that. So when we think of it that way, and we think of the MIC kind of peeling things back, we can understand why many of us don't want to go to the doctor, even if we can afford it and we have access to insurance. Like there is a violence that's always running under the surface. And sometimes it's very upfront. It's much more actively violent. If you are a person who's targeted because of racial violence or targeted because of gender injustice or targeted because of disability or all of those things simultaneously, or fatness is really stigmatized and pathologized in the MIC in very terrible ways. It's a huge barrier for people to get care. We hear countless stories in the HJC of people who are like, trying to get basic health care and are basically told by doctors and gatekeepers, like you can't access health care until you lose weight. Like what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I mean, it really is criminal in a lot of ways. And now there's a big movement. The fat positive movement has been advancing like a framework that's around healthy at any weight. And that's a really important framework that's part of health justice alongside all these other facets of intersectional collective liberation, essentially. That was a very long answer again, but hopefully that helps to make it more clear for listeners who haven't heard the framework of the MIC before. It's extremely helpful to hear. Thank you for just really mapping different aspects of this landscape, knowing that there's so much there historically, right? And in the present and yeah, just really feeling this together of the definition of health in a way that's deeply interdependent and then this definition of medical industrial complex, which is looking at these interlocking forces of systemic oppression. So on this note of intersectional collective liberation, which is health justice commons, responding to all of this in your definition or a description that you've just given of the medical industrial complex, you've named a lot of the intersections that health justice commons works at. What is Health Justice Commons offering? And what does this term health justice make possible? The Health Justice Commons, as you said, we work at the intersections of racial, economic, gender, disability, and environmental justice to support those communities who have been most harmed and most marginalized to lead in reimagining and redesigning healthcare and healing for our times. And we provide health justice training and consultation we engage in health justice movement building and incubate community-driven solutions, which generate health abundance and alleviate the devastating burden of social injustice and environmental racism. And we also really center understanding how intergenerational trauma is a big part of what we need to heal from. That needs to be centrally understood and uplifted in our healing work and that much of our communities are 
surviving intergenerational trauma as a consequence of settler colonialism and climate chaos. And that's like what's real for most or all of us. So that's a big part of our work as well. And political education is a huge part of the way that we engage in the movement building work that we do. So our work is grounded in an intersectional social justice lens, and it centers a trauma-informed approach. We really strive to transform the profound role that intergenerational trauma plays in, in health and harm. And our work aims to catalyze the creation of healthcare systems outside of the medical industrial complex to honor and uplift what's already here, you know, to figure out how can that have more resources? How can it thrive more? How can these pockets of like resistance and resilience that's already happening and, you know, have enabled us to be here? How can those systems be networked and become a parallel system to the medical industrial complex that we have now that many of us are forced into, forced and coerced into depending upon? And that was one of the historic MOs of the formation of the MIC, as we know it, it's a profit-motivated system. So it, it has the same rationales as other profit-motivated systems. You want captive markets, and that's exactly what the MIC does. So that is a contradiction that we are up against a lot with our communities. It's one of the biggest questions that comes up in our political education when we're like sitting together, like how can we come together to like leverage the resources and the capacity to co-create alternatives and like parallel systems as we're still dependent upon these current systems and we're really kind of entangled in them out of survival necessity like we get that so that is probably one of the biggest questions of our times and the answer is like we're already doing it you know like just by articulating the question by our survival by engaging in the daily work that we're doing we are doing it but like where we want to be is like still it's far off we want the moment where and this kind of touches into your question of like what do we want to see like we want a moment where there's a global moratorium on chemicals because the chemical industry needs to be shut down every bit as much as the fossil fuel industry does. Like we want to see a moment when big pharma doesn't exist anymore and insurance companies don't exist anymore, not here, not globally. It's about healthcare co-ops that are networked accordingly to meet the local and regional needs. And that, you know, healthcare co-ops or collectives are collectively owned by the people providing care and the people receiving care have a say in how they receive that care. Like that's just like you're, you're a collaborator and you're a partner with a person who's supporting your healing. You know, there needs to be a lot more horizontalism in care, not just between people giving and receiving care, but also the broader systems and they can't be profit motivated. So that means the people providing the care need to be like sharing the wealth that's generated. And that needs to be kind of shared within the community, like the healthcare centers or healing centers should be vibrant ecosystems, not like wealth and knowledge and power extractors and borders, which is like essentially how the MIC is functioning now. And you can see why the quote unquote healthcare outcomes of people living in the US are as dismal as they are given the nature of the system. So, you know, we still might need things like insulin. We still might need a lot of the 
pharmaceuticals, there might be some technologies that we still, yeah, that we're like, yeah, we're going to, this is working. We're going to hang with this. We're going to make it better. We're going to interrogate the thinking and the technologies that created it, but we still need this thing, right? Pharmaceutical companies too, they should be co-ops, right? I mean, what we're really saying in like the broadest sense is obviously we're anti-capitalist. So our whole economies and our life worlds need to completely transform for health justice to be possible. So it's a very big vision, but step-by-step we're getting there. We have a mutual aid and alternatives project right now. In addition to the political education work that we do, there's like a few ways that people can get involved. People can participate in our six course series that we run twice a year and we may expand in the future because of demand. Because we now have over a hundred people enrolling for each series, which is like really exciting and beautiful and humbling. We have a part one and part two of understanding and transforming forming the medical industrial complex. Part one is more of an overview. Part two has like a deeper analysis around the intersections of climate justice and disability justice and exposing the interconnections of ableism and climate injustice and environmental racism and the entanglements with the MIC. And part one is more of an overview of the history of the MIC, the MIC's MOs, and just very important movements that uplift and disrupt the corruption and violence of the medical industrial complex and health injustice. So disability justice, reproductive justice, intersex justice, and racial, gender, and economic justice are all part of that as well. So that's what part one looks at. We also have bi-monthly RAD healers and healthcare worker solidarity gatherings. And those are for folks that also want to get involved with this movement. You can be a healer or a healthcare worker or a member or an activist or a participant in disability community, disability justice. Folks are welcome to come to that space where we kind of come together to build solidarity, learn together, build community. We do different types of things. Sometimes we just kind of like hang out and hold space on a theme that like people want to connect about. And oftentimes we welcome guest presenters. So our last one in August was about the impacts of the pandemic on sick and disabled people and kind of like the state of the pandemic. This was just when Delta was really becoming prominent. We were realizing the intensity of it. And of course, sick and disabled and crip communities, we were the first to realize how bad it was going to get. By June, we were like, yeah, we see where this is headed. And like Noel was listening for us for a while. By the time August rolled around, everybody was beginning to pay attention. And we were like, yeah, you could have listened to us, you know, one of these days. Somebody will listen to us, especially BIPOC disabled communities. We're like, we are out here. We are knowing where this is going to go. Yeah. So you can attend those types of events and you can follow us. You can check out our website for information for upcoming events. And you can also follow us on social media, Health Justice Commons on Facebook, HJ Commons on Twitter, Health Justice Commons on Instagram. And we post announcements of upcoming things and all of our social media channels and also our website. And you can join our newsletter as well, which we put out about once every month to six weeks. It also gives you lots of updates and information, blog content, original art from our members. It's like totally beautiful and amazing. Other events of partners, there's a join us button on our website, which is www.healthjusticecommons.org. 
And then we also, circling back to what I was saying a second ago, we also have a mutual aid project that's really amazing, partnering rad healers and healthcare workers with disabled organizers and activists and community members called the Radical Telehealth Collective. And basically, we are providing free healthcare for our communities. And we haven't done a huge public launch because we're trying to basically perfect our model through building with community partners regionally across the U.S. before we're like, okay, our, our virtual doors are wide open. So now we're seeing, you know, about like five to 10 folks per week. And we have rad docs that provide their services. We also are bringing on other radical healthcare workers like occupational therapists and maybe social workers, even other types of healers that do more ancestral practices, trying to figure out how that could work on a virtual platform as well. So if you are a healthcare provider and you want to get involved, please join us. If you are a member of communities that have been most impacted by harm or marginalization from the MIC, we want to build with you. We want your leadership. We would love to have you join the Radical Telehealth Collective. And again, if you are interested in that, you can use the link on the website to email us. And then regarding our abolitionist and people science lens that we bring to our work, everything that we do, it's kind of grounded and rooted in and constellated through these lenses of like an intersectional social justice lens, especially disability and climate justice. And then also an abolitionist and people science lens. So for people science, there's like a lot of different trajectories and lineages that we look to to inform and guide that. There's a people science movement in India that's like very robust that has been informed and guided by a lot of different people's movements there, like people's movements resisting big pharma and big agro, like all of the farmers resistance around Monsanto and things of that nature, like people science is a big part of that. Also survivors of Bhopal, like big people science movement around that and just other types of toxic exposures. But there's also people's science movements against those types of exploitative bohemists, like across the globe. There's a lot of indigenous leadership around that. And then here in Turtle Island, there's a lot of people science lenses that are uplifted by Black and Indigenous and people of color activists and scholars. And Ruha Benjamin's work is work that we really love. And she's like a really active partner and supporter of ours. And her vision of people science is one that we're really inspired by as well, where we really contest these frameworks that we've been given, especially from medical science and scientific disciplines. But we center ourselves as knowledge makers and that we have the power to be in our knowing, that we have the power to create and co-create knowledge and that we have the power to kind of use these disciplines and knowledge that can come through them or be generated through them in liberatory ways. So it's also like very influenced by Foucault, like anything that can be exploitative can also be liberatory. So when we look at people science, that's like really what we're thinking, like what's appropriate technology in this situation? Like there's a lot of ways that the resources that we have available could be used with the precautionary principle could be used appropriately to meet human and planetary need and be non-exploitative. So how do we do that, right? Like, what does that look like? And how can we deploy a lot of the knowledge, especially that's coming up in this moment of the actual harm that trauma is causing, of the actual harm that climate injustice, environmental racism, climate chaos is causing? Like, how can that 
not just like uplift legitimacy that we shouldn't, we shouldn't need that uplifting because we know what's true, but like there's so much force against us, but also to be able to create strategies using this information to support us and to create solutions because it's like great to use everything that's available to us. And how can we use science and data to our advantage in context of medical advocacy or medical solidarity? We can flip the script. Like how can we disrupt the medical gaslighting, like when it happens to be like factually untrue, here's the research, like not accurate, which is sometimes what we need, you know, especially in those unjust circumstances of exploitative power arrangements where you're like, what can I leverage to balance the scales here? It's not an individual thing, obviously, but in a moment like that, it's like, how can we start to learn these tactics collectively? So that's, I think, a little bit of a framework of people science. And an abolitionist framework is, of course, you know, Dr. Benjamin Ruha brings that into her work frequently. The abolitionist movement was teaching us a lot in this moment of where the movement to disrupt and transform the medical industrial complex has to go. In some ways, we're in a developmental moment of a movement that maybe mirrors where the abolition movement was like 20 or 25 years ago, even though there's been a lot of organizing around health health and health justice. And of course, healing justice as a movement is like really springing up into really robust power right now. And that's a movement that has a lot of ties and overlaps with both the disability justice movements and health justice movements, but is more rooted in the South and is more like kind of directly taking leadership from and informed by lineages of of Black women and queer and and trans and non-binary people. But certainly there's like a lot of alignment and solidarity among all of those things for health justice and for us as the HJC, a lot of taking leadership and honoring that work and learning. And abolition is just like that we like center what it means to be in more complete collective and individual autonomy and sovereignty. So bodily sovereignty, bodily autonomy, horizontal power arrangements, all of those things are very important in an abolitionist mindset because you're exposing the exploitative power dynamics that may exist. And then you're also asking, how can this be transformed from a a system of confinement to a system of possibility, to a system in which like people's agency and wholeness and the inherent knowledge and expertise and power that every human being brings, like how can that be fully honored? There's so much to say. There's so much vibrancy and interconnectivity that for me, feels really deeply enlivening. And I think before we move and start to shift towards close for today, I just want to invite all of us to, to take a breath in your own way. Just really receiving the potency of what's here and all of the incredible resistance and survival and dreaming, all of this labor. <laughs> both like glamorous and less glamorous that I feel like Mordecai you've just offered. Like there's just such, so much. Um, And just for our listeners, as you're receiving this almost like waterfall of like resources, resistance, strategy, possibilities for engagement, know that this will also be available in our show notes, both ways to get involved and just deeper inquiry on some of these themes. So if you're like me and frantically taking notes on small pieces of paper, (laughs) it'll also be written down for you. 
And we're going to start to shift now towards ending our time for today and want to say first again, Mordecai, thank you. Thanks to all the people and more than people who have brought you to this time with us, movements, plants, beings, ancestors, just so grateful for you, for our connection with white noise across years too. I think that I'd be curious to hear, you know, this is a podcast specifically, we're hoping to engage those of us who are white racial justice organizers and white people doing accomplice solidarity work. And, you know, inside of our multiple identities, not singularly as white people related to class, gender, age, disability, chronic illness, beyond. And just curious what you might offer on like themes of health justice for those of us who are white folks engaging in struggle. Well, there's no shortage of important work for us to be doing in this moment. That's probably not a mystery to any of us in this work. I mean, this is a moment of a lot of pain, but also a lot of possibility. Unfortunately, I think that's kind of a theme of what's happening for humanity in this moment. And unfortunately, as a consequence of humanity's actions and choices, the planet as a whole. But I think that's something that's very powerful in this moment for us as anti-racist activists or organizers or accomplices is that there's more of us than there were before. (laughs) We can find each other, we can come together and figure out how together our work can be the most effective. We can also support each other because the horrificness of white supremacy that is denied by broader white culture and white people when we're not in denial and we're trying to be accountable to people in our lives who we love or people that we don't know and we love. It can be a lot, you know, and it's important to hold that lotness. It's like not like a lot, like we become martyrs or we pity ourselves because the horrificness that we're trying to confront is obviously much, much worse for Black and Indigenous and Latinx and and other people of color who are surviving every day or not surviving. So I think like that is a benefit that like my great-grandfather's or my grandmother's generation didn't have to the extent that we have now. We're up against a very pernicious, really frightening white supremacist kind of neo-fascist backlash in this country and across the globe. But at the same time, there is a welling of global solidarity for liberation that's like, I don't know if it's unprecedented because I've only been here for 46 and some years. And it's hard to say from the accountings of history, even though clearly trying to be up on my history is an important resource for us. But I would say there's a great power that we're a part of in this moment, even when we feel powerless. And that is one of the most effective tools of our oppressors to fool us into thinking that we are powerless. So I think like, continuing to align with the truth that we are powerful and but we also have the power to wield that power in a way that is transformative and is a stark departure from the power that has been used against us and others and that we're part of this collective welling is just something hopefully that can buoy us in those moments when we feel like hope can be far off 
which I feel like, unfortunately, we all encounter those moments. So to just feel into the collective power that we're a part of, the collective will, the collective love, because it is there. And it is there and it's kind of like being emitted and radiated from people that we'll never meet and probably never know, but like they're out there. And then sometimes they're right close, you know, so be in community with the people who are close to get support, to get replenishment, to get nourishment. That is crucial in these times too. And just be reminded how essential you are, even if whatever you're doing in some moments feels so small and insignificant. It's not, it's not. Try to remember that too. And of course, listen to BIPOC leaders, but I think everybody knows that. <laughs> listen to our folks. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Mordecai. Thank you for all that you have shared. Thank you all that you've conveyed and transmitted. Thank you for just this incredible medicinal transformative work that you and so many others are laboring and dreaming and creating different paths together. And thank you for the invitation to get involved in all kinds of ways. As Jay said, we're going to be enthusiastically putting up all the links, all the ways to connect. It's been so good to spend this time with you. Thank you so much, Jay and Zara. Thank you so much, White Noise Collective. I'm grateful and honored to have been able to participate in this podcast. And I'm so grateful for this community and all the beautiful work that we're doing together. We would like to thank Dave Pickering for sound editing on this episode. The music is by Blue Dot Sessions. This interview conversation was recorded in late 2021 and is brought to you by Radical Imagination. Radical Imagination. Way deep down. Way up high. Way out wide. Way within. <laughs>